It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Good morning, good afternoon and good evening. It's Wednesday, it's episode 26, the pot of tea is on the go and we're going to take a deep dive into the decade that we bizarrely call the noughties and to the football of its time. This is the Noughties Nostalgia Podcast and this is episode 26. And within, we've got a birthday today. Andrew Wang, a South Korean hero from the 2002 World Cup, celebrates his 45th birthday today. The Table Never Lies goes to Spain and to the 2002-03 season and a battle for the title and a battle for the Champions League spots there. Hotly contested. But first, we've got to go to South Yorkshire and we're going to be talking about Neil Warnock's time at Sheffield United. To take a look at Neil Warnock and Sheffield United, we first have to do a quick retrospective on the Blades. They'd won four FA Cups and had a league title to their name pre-World War II. Then they would yo-yo between Divisions 1 and 2 from the 1940s right up until 1976, but in 1981 they found themselves in Division 4. Yet nine years later, they'd climbed back up to the top flight after securing back-to-back promotions. Their four years in the top flight included the first two years of the Premier League, which included scoring the first goal of the Premier League, Brian Dean, against Manchester United. Then following relegation, Sheffield United had their longest stint in one division since 1934. They'd spend 12 years in the second tier, which is where we pick up our story today. After bouncing around the EFL at clubs such as Huddersfield, Plymouth, Oldham and Bury, Neil Warnock took on his biggest job today at Sheffield United in 1999. Warnock was a former winger in his playing years, believe it or not, and a former undertaker, believe that or not. (laughs) He'd got promotion out of non-league with Scarborough, he'd got two promotions with Notts County, but got relegated from the top flight, missing out on their first Premier League season which got him the sack. He'd got Huddersfield promoted, he'd got Plymouth promoted, but in his next two jobs, steered both Oldham and Berry to relegation in the late 1990s. Both parties could be described as being in a slump. Sheffield United had come off the back of two playoff campaigns, losing the 1997 final to Palace. Palace, who would go to the Premier League, come straight back down, as was tradition at the time. And then Sheffield United would lose the 1998 semi-final to Sunderland. 
Warnock would take his boiled club to three mid-table finishes until the golden season of 2002-03, the triple assault. Sheffield United marched on in the league. They were third behind runaway promoted clubs such as Portsmouth and Leicester City. And the playoff semi-final was their third semi-final that season. They'd beaten Leeds United to an FA Cup semi-final and beat Leeds again on the way to the League Cup semi-final. Leeds a club in free fall. Sheffield United seemingly on the way up to surpass them. Michael Tong put two past Liverpool as Sheffield United racked up 10 home cup wins from 10. However, Liverpool would win the return leg of the League Cup at Anfield winning 2-0 and went on to win the trophy. And four months later, Arsenal would win a semi-final at Old Trafford against Sheffield United and win that trophy. That match, of course, is better known for that one David Seaman save from Paul Pesky Solido. What is one of the best saves of all time? Up there with Gordon Banks against Brazil in 1970. Seaman was behind... The ball was behind David Seaman and he clawed the ball out of his right hand. Paul Pesky Solido, if it was expected goals, it'd be like 1.01 from the header from three yards out. But alas, they went on to lose Freddie Lundberg scoring. And this is the game where, being on terrestrial TV, this is where the country believed that Sheffield United could hang in the top flight. And their 11th home knockout win from 11 was done the hard way later in May. Forrest went 2-0 up in the semi-final at Bramall Lane, but Michael Brown threw a deflected free kick and Steve Cabber threw a Gaza-esque versus Scotland volley, tied the game up. The game went to extra time. Nottingham Forest, Sheffield United, semi-final of the old second division. 3-3 on aggregate. Then Pesky Solido scored. Des Walker netted an own goal in extra time. And with the aggregate score at 5-4, Sheffield United surely had to go up. In my Yorkshire eyes, at least, I believe that there was no way they couldn't go up. They faced Wolves at Cardiff in the playoff final. Wolves hadn't been in the top flight since the 80s. Sheffield United hadn't been in the top flight since 1994. But by halftime, the game was over 3-0. Wolves had blitzed them. And then Warnock skirted two eighth-place finishes in 2004 and 2005, missing out on the playoffs by the skin of his teeth, but finally went up automatically in 2006, not relying on the playoffs anymore went up and Sheffield United had their third season in Premier League history. He'd rubber-stamped himself as the Blades' best post-war manager, which is a question I took to Twitter. And I asked, is Neil Warnock the best ever Sheffield United manager? So, Hal from the Sheffield United Way podcast, Fantastic Podcast, stated, Chris Wilder is still the Blades' best manager, but Warnock guiding United to the playoff final, the League Cup and FA Cup semis does bring back triple assault memories and triple assault is the name of Sheffield United's 2002-3 VHS review. And for any Sheffield United fans, any Blades listening, it's on YouTube. Go and seek it out. It's a, it's a time capsule of some sort. So it might be just coincidental, but Chris Wilder and Neil Warnock both grew up loving Sheffield United as a boy and are now considered their two best managers. Warnock, of course, had the longevity um, in his eight years at the club. But Wilder, in his unique tactical system, inspired Sheffield United to come up from the doldrums of League One to mid-table in Premier League. He got them promoted from the third tier at the first time of asking, despite one point from the first four games in the league at least. And their ninth place in the Premier League was Sheffield United's best finish since 1975 and the days of goal-scoring, free-scoring Alan Woodward when they finished sixth. Back to Warnock though, and back to 2006-2007. Sheffield United bowed out at the first time of asking, thanks to Wigan's win at Bramall Lane, that David Unsworth penalty on the final day. 
This was coupled with a win for West Ham at Champions Manchester United and at Old Trafford. That man, Carlos Tevez, the man that occupied Sheffield United nightmares until they got promoted in 2019. His goal at Old Trafford sent them down. Tevez would then go on to play for Manchester United, of course, and win everything there is to win in football. Anyway, Sheffield United were awarded a settlement, not the points deduction for West Ham that they wanted. So it was a sole Premier League season back. The Blades would return to the AFL, only to be resurfacing in the Premier League some 12 years later under Chris Wilder. Minimalist Football remembers Colin Kazim Richards from that season and asks, what other players have you watched after not seeing them play for 13 years? as he's now at Derby, of course, which is quite the question that stumped me. And if anybody has it, anybody has an example, please let me know in the comments because Kazim Richards played at Euro 2008 for Turkey, sort of must have gone back to Turkey in the meantime and he's cropped back up. Obviously, I don't think that... I'm not a Turkish Super League fan. I'm, I don't know if most of my listeners and followers and watchers are either, but I haven't seen him since Euro 2008 and I haven't watched many Derby games this season, so I haven't seen him yet either. Perhaps Warnock will be better known for his antics off the field. Um, a particular highlight that was spoken on the show before is that sizzle reel in the differences between himself and Plymouth. Himself and Pep, where he wants to beat Plymouth so fucking much <laughs> and uh, being disciplined and having fun being disciplined right there. Um, his moaning of the referees became notorious, of which uh, Keith Hackett gave us a few Warnock referee stories. Yes, that one, that Keith Hackett, the FIFA referee, PGMOL boss, and the author of You Are The Ref book, which is a fantastic book, obviously. So Keith Hackett says, When Lee Mason was promoted to the Premier League, Neil Warnock sent a letter of congratulations. He ended it by stating that Sheffield United, a championship club, will no longer have to put up with his referee. And so that's another little diamond there from, from Neil Warnock. Keith Hackett also goes on to say, when I was boss of PGMOL, I would often receive a call to pop into Bramall Lane on a Monday. Neil, a qualified referee, would have a detailed DVD produced asking for comments on various incidents, which for me is quintessential Warnock. He's eccentric, he's outspoken, and he's hilarious, and he's always badgering on to referees. I mean, we've seen it earlier on this season where, as Middlesbrough manager in their trip to Stoke, he would um, blast the <laughs> the condition of the away dressing rooms, obviously temporary away dressing rooms in COVID times, um, and that took off like wildfire. Jersey had Jose Mourinho talking about it before their trip to the Britannia Stadium in the League Cup later on that season. I'd put a neat bow on this segment. At Paul G. Hernandez on Twitter tells us, many Blades players will attest to Warnock changing the team selection just prior to kickoff because his wife Sharon had had a dream of the game the night before. So, And with that, we'd be goodbye to Neil Warnock, a fantastic manager. I think he's got the record for most promotions in English football. Fantastic manager. Obviously, would manage Crystal Palace and QPR in the Premier League after that as well. After this short break... We won't be talking about Neil Warnock, we won't be going to, we'll be far away from South Yorkshire because we'll be talking about a South Korean hero and because it's his 45th birthday today. Happy birthday, An Jung Wan. Welcome back, bienvenue, and I don't know what welcome is in Korean, but here we go. It's An Jung Wan's 45th birthday and... Let's have a little retrospective on An Jung Wang. He was pulling up trees before the World Cup. He was named in the K-League's best 11 in 1998 
and went on to win the K-League's MVP award in 1999. He would become the first Korean to play in the Serie A, joining Perugia on loan in 2000, a loan spell for two years that would become noteworthy, to say the least. He wasn't best pals with Marco Materazzi, and if you don't know this man, I'm pretty sure you'll know his backstory here, his notoriety towards the end of his spell in Italy. So, South Korea had qualified for five World Cups at this point, 2002. They played 14 matches, they hadn't won a single game, they'd drawn four, scored only 11, conceded 43 and suffered five group stage exits. This whole history of South Korean football at the world stage changed on June the 4th in Busan in their homeland with a 2-0 win over Poland. Hwang Sung Hong and Yu Sang Chul scoring the goals in South Korea's first ever win at a World Cup. Andrew Wang scored a late equaliser against a pretty decent USA team who would reach the quarterfinals, which put South Korea on top of the tree, in the top of the Group D tree, going into the final match, which was the hardest, on paper, the hardest team of the group, Portugal. They only needed a draw, and thanks to Poland's thrashing of America 3-1, Park Ji-sung popped up with a winner on 70 minutes against nine-man Portugal. And although there would be conspiracy about South Korea's latter stages of that tournament, I don't think there could be that much um, controversy about the two red cards that Portugal suffered here. Yao Pinto with an absolute horror challenge in the first half. And Beto's second yellow card at least was deserving as he hacked down a man on the left wing for South Korea. A few days later, June the 18th, Andrew Wang's career would change forever. Italy, place of his work came to South Korea for the last 16 match. Christian Vieri putting Italy into the lead. Italy was supposed to qualify with ease, go to the quarterfinals like they had done in 98, like they had done in 94 and in 1990. But Sol Ki-hyung equalised with two minutes left on the clock to take us into extra time. Then the controversy started. Totti was sent off for diving despite it being a clear penalty. And then the Perugia man scored the golden goal on 117 minutes. Header glanced over, back of the net. Italy were out, South Korea would play Spain. And we wouldn't be talking about this if Christian Vieri wouldn't have just scored that empty net at the end of uh, 90 minutes. But there we go. The conspiracy continued. 24 hours later after the defeat, Perugia's owner stated, I have no intention of playing, paying a salary to someone who has ruined Italian football. And although the owner would rescind that contract cancellation as they had a, an option to buy in the loan deal, and rejected it, stating that he didn't want to play for a club who uh, caused defamation of his character, pretty much. And then he would move to Japan for three years before finally getting his European move to Metz in 2005, also play for Duisburg in Germany. Back to the World Cup, though, the conspiracy didn't stop at the Italian match. South Korea would play Spain, conquerors of Ireland, on penalties, and there would be another penalty shootout in this quarterfinal. Spain had two perfectly good goals ruled out, it seemed, um, but South Korea won 5-3 in the shootout, reaching their first ever semi-final, but would be eliminated by a Michael Ballack-inspired Germany 1-0. Wouldn't play in a final in their home tournament, which is a shame. But by the nefarious means that they got, they would have got to the final, perhaps it is a good thing. They would concede the fastest goal at a World Cup to Turkey, finishing fourth in a 3-2 loss to Turkey, another surprise package in a tournament full of surprise packages. Hal from the Sheffield United Way podcast tweeted us, Song Chong Gung had the best performances at that World Cup. And 
the man in midfielder, he was unknown before Gus Hiddink thrust him into the team for the 2001 Confederations Cup, the warm-up, the dress rehearsal for the World Cup, so to speak. He'd played in Busan, just like Andrew Wang, but for a different team. He was a versatile midfielder who could do the dirty job, such as keeping Luis Figo in his pocket, for instance. Um, for these qualities and his dogged pressing and shuttling abilities, he's one of Hiddink's main men and one of his first names on his team sheet. His performances, like so many in this tournament, um, earned him a move to Europe and he would move to Feyenoord a whole year after Park Ji-sung moved to PSV. And for South Korea, 2002 will likely be never be eclipsed. Their three wins at 2002 has only been equaled with the miracle of Kazan in their final match at the 2018 World Cup, which was, of course, that 2-0 win over Germany, one of the bright spots in the last tournament there. After they'd won one each at the 2006 tournament against Togo before going out of the group stages, and in 2010 against Greece, where they would qualify, the only time apart from the 2002 World Cup where they did qualify for the knockout stage, but would obviously go out to Uruguay and Luis Suarez in the last 16 in South Africa. With that, South Korea obviously coming to the conversation of biggest tournament surprise packages, biggest World Cup surprise packages. Although, in my mind, I do have an asterisk for a home nation at a tournament being a quote-unquote surprise package because... They have the backing of the fans, obviously, in the in the times where fans could watch football at games. So like Russia in the quarterfinals, they had the backing of the fans. They were drawn into a relatively simple-looking group. Obviously, the the win against um, Spain in the last 16 penalty shootout was a big shock and perhaps could have gone one better and reached the semifinals and maybe England would have a World Cup medals now, but let's, let's not talk about that. So at least in the World Cups, I've been alive. There hasn't been any bigger surprise packages as Turkey and Senegal, who I'd rank above South Korea. Turkey, it was their first World Cup since, I think, 1954, where they got demolished in a group with West Germany and Hungary, who went on to play that year's final. And Senegal, who had never been in a a World Cup, obviously they had that fantastic team, Juf, Jao, Bubu Jop. They'd reached the 2002 AFCON final, but obviously had a hard group, Denmark, Uruguay, France, got through that group, beat Sweden, obviously would go out to Turkey via Golden Goal, unfortunately. Um, They're the two biggest surprises for me. Harry Holland tweeted us and he said Costa Rica in 2014, and let's be honest, they were joining the group of death, the supposed whipping boys, uh, making up the numbers in Group D. They were supposed to get whipped by Uruguay, Italy and England (laughs) and then leave the tournament. Instead, they got seven points. England, the only team to not be beaten by Costa Rica. So there's something for the England and Roy Hodgson team of 2014. So Costa Rica shocked everyone. They went 1-0 down against Uruguay and you think, oh, here we go. Uruguay going to top the group. Easy, done. But Costa Rica would win, obviously, and then beat Italy to knock England out and then beat Greece and then took the Dutch to penalties. Louis van Gaal's Dutch side, who many seem to have, I think, a rose-tinted look on their tournament because, oh, they thrashed Spain 5-1, but I don't think they had a particularly great tournament after that, really. Uh, scraped a win against Australia, scraped a win against Chile, and obviously Mexico nearly went out. So it's still hard to fathom back to Costa Rica. It's still hard to fathom that they were a few spot kicks away from a World Cup semi-final. Obviously, Van Gaal made that genius decision to take Jasper Sillison off and put Tim Krull in for the penalty shootouts, a move that could have horribly backfired. <laughs> But as we saw in the semi-finals with the Dutch losing on penalties to Argentina with Sillison in net, a wise move. So, like myself, a few seem to have watched England's elimination. 
vicariously at the hands of Costa Rica from holiday or abroad. So for me, I was in Amsterdam watching the Uruguay loss, Uruguay England match in the middle of the North Sea on the on a boat from Hull to Rotterdam. Um, then the day after, watched Costa Rica beat Italy, taking the edge off England's elimination with a few edibles. But that's me. Maracas flute says he was in the streets of Istanbul and the street of hostels that he was staying in in Istanbul and he found every cafe that was showing every match on huge big screens which just sounds like heaven to me really and it was the same in Amsterdam a lot of every bar was showing football we watched South Korea Algeria in a bar we watched Germany Ghana in a bar watched loads of games every pub in that place was showing football and the Aglo Italian pod Watched England get knocked out whilst they were living in Spain, which is another dream scenario now in the times that we're living currently. So, memories of 2002. So, we've got a wide range of opinions here. So, let's start with the extremes. Jonathan R. tweets us, That utterly dreadful World Cup was a disgrace. World's worst World Cup ever. Biggest pile of shit and a waste of time and space. So, don't hold your feelings back there, Jonathan. But yeah, I, I can see... That point of view, I've said on this podcast before, I prefer a World Cup where all the best teams are in it. So Holland didn't even qualify for the tournament. You've got Portugal, Argentina, France not even making the knockout phase. And you've got teams like Senegal, Turkey, South Korea making the latter stage of Land America. Um, that can be said in 2002, they weren't the big team that they are trying to be now. Uh, all the uh, smaller nations, smaller footballing nations in the last eight. So I, mean, I can see that point of view. I enjoyed it personally, but uh, Quirk says the tournament reminds me of that that Korean player fired by Perugia for knocking Italy out, which of course we've covered here. Davinio said, I wasn't even born, but I know there are theories of it being rigged, of course, echoing the potential dodgy red cards against Portugal, but I think I've debunked that that they are. Go watch it on YouTube, the, the pretty shocking challenges. Um, obviously, the Italy and Spain eliminations, yeah, they can't be skirted around in similar fashion. Peter15 says, David Seaman getting lobbed by Ronaldinho, but in less polite terms. I think we all remember that. We all remember where we were at 7.55 or whenever it was. <laughs> uh, which Hannah B also says, early morning starts before school, lessons after the Brazil game, where England obviously got eliminated, were torture. FPL Wombat says, Turkey reaching the semi-finals, Senegal and South Korea, Ronaldo's hair, the worst hairstyle era, and he would forward me on to Umit Davala's Shia Mohawk, the Turkish... Turkish player there, which is a thing of beauty. Uh, check it out on Google. It's fantastic. Lelouch states, some things were good in the World Cup in 2002, but 1998 and 2006 were hit for him were better. And I would agree. 98, I haven't, I didn't have vivid memories. I was only five. I only remember the odd game. Um, but from what I've watched back, it seemed better. You know, they got the USA, Iran match, Holland being fantastic. All the strikers being in terrific form, Vieri, Batistuta, Salas, etc. Ronaldo, of course. And 2006, I skived so much to score that month to watch that. <laughs> it was just fantastic. Uh, Russ Green says, Golden Generation's best chance. Adidas Predator Mania boots, my favourite personally. Uh, Ronaldinho breaking hearts at 8am. Uh, the sixth form was a carnival of football. Pure joy. Uh, yeah, likewise, my school was just a carnival of football, right from the Senegal-France match that we watched at lunchtime, right through to the end. Anglo-Italian pod also says he got that mini ball signed by the legend that is Efri Sodji, who played for Nigeria whilst at Crew Alex. Still sits proudly on the shelf. Um, yeah, some player, <laughs> Efri Sodji, is um, that 
football, the FIFA Nova was fantastic. And a long line of footballs then, tournament footballs that were just world-class. The uh, Rotero from Euro 2004 was absolutely superb. Uh, Nikhail simply just says Ronaldo. And yeah, Ronaldo was just in world-class form. The best he was ever the best he would ever be. Um, there were doubts surrounding his build-ups at all, obviously. Was injured for a lot of the time between 98 and 2002. Didn't play a right lot for Inter Milan. Obviously, off the back of this tournament where he won the Golden Boot, scored two goals in the final and obviously won the title again. Um, he would get a move to Real Madrid and his career just went up and up and up again. Uh, the Honest Football Podcast tweeted me a gif of Rivaldo getting hit with a ball against Turkey, which obviously... One of the most notorious points of the tournament, really, getting a Turkish player sent off for that. And Turkey wouldn't even get revenge on Brazil in the semi-finals, losing to them, courtesy of Ronaldo Topok. And yeah, Rivaldo, for all his fantastic, you know, mastering the overhead kick for Barcelona, playing, you know, for all these teams, being a world-class player, obviously featuring heavily for Brazil at the 98 World Cup, he'll probably forever be remembered for faking a... Facial injury from a football uh, when it hit his leg in a group stage match against Turkey. Never mind. My other memories also include, you know, watching England play Nigerian Brazil whilst sat in the classroom or in the assembly hall, celebrating at lunch break when Senegal beat France, which was still the biggest shock in World Cup history for me. Uh, Beckham beating Argentina and dancing down the hallway at my mum's house. Um, four years of redemption story that I'd just started watching football when that story started one of the best games I've seen and I think it was only the third match I'd sat through the entirety of and I was blessed to have watched one of the best games ever in my third ever match um, yeah my street audibly cheering on Ireland against Spain and my one of my Irish neighbours going mental when Spain won the shootout in the last 16 um, I remember England beating Denmark and thinking we'd win it scoring three goals it was England's biggest win at a World Cup up until one of the biggest wins at a World Cup up until uh, the Panama match uh, a couple of years ago. I remember Balak, Ronaldinho, Miroslav Klose, Ronaldo, Buba Diop, Hassan Sass. It was just a fantastic tournament. Um, and the first tournament, I, first yeah, first tournament, first World Cup that I remember all the way through and remember most of it, you know, from Nelson Cuevas scoring fantastic goals for Paraguay, etc. You know, fantastic tournament. So 2006 for me would be better because I think I was at that age, but I think as a tournament and I think it just was better than 2006 but for me personally I enjoyed 2006 more if that makes sense <laughs> so we'll be going away from international football onto tournament football and we'll be going back to the club game after this short short break we'll be going a few year, few months back further forward in time and to La Liga and we'll be looking at the table as it was 18 years ago today in January 2003. <laughs> We return with the Table Never Lies and we're going to Spain, we're going to La Liga and this is how the table looked 18 years ago today. Jonathan R, who had such great memories of the 2002 World Cup, tweeted as Real Sociedad should have been 2003 champions. Real Madrid were lucky, jammy, undeserving sods. <laughs> Banging form today is Jonathan and we may as well start the roundup of the 2002-03 La Liga season right there. So it's fairly topical as Real Sociedad stormed La Liga early on in this season. They've Obviously, they've since fallen back owing to a few injuries, a few inconsistencies. William Jose has gone to Wolves, etc. Today, they sit sixth, having led for a while. And 18 years ago, they sat top. Not only did they sit top, they sat top undefeated after 19 games. 
five points ahead of Real Madrid, Darko Kovacevic was banging in the goals after he returned to San Sebastian following an ill-fated spell in Italy where he played only 30 or so times for the likes of Juventus and Lazio. Nihat, in his first full season at the club, got 23 league goals, tying with Ronaldo in second place in the Pichichi standings. You had the experienced Sander Westveld in net, and you also had the young in Xabi Alonso before his big money move to Liverpool, of course. Larial's undefeated form took a dive the following week after the league table you're seeing on your screen right now, losing 3-0 at Athletic Club before further defeats to Real Betis and Real Valladolid finally had them off their perch going into March. Real Madrid now led the league. So in the space of four games, four April games, they travelled to Deportivo and Barcelona. Deportivo, obviously, at that time, fantastic team, title-challenging team, title-winning team. Um, Barcelona, obviously, it's Barcelona. They're one of the big teams in Spain. They would lose to both 2-1 away from home. But sandwiched in between those games, they played Real Madrid at home and thrashed them 4-2. 4-2 doesn't sound like a thrashing, but Kovacevic and Nihat destroyed Real Madrid in the first 30 minutes, 3-0. And then Ronaldo and Xabi Alonso trading quick goals meant a 4-1 halftime scoreline. They score flattering Real Madrid a tiny bit with a consolation goal late on. So, but after winning this game and then losing to Barcelona, the third in the late, third in the table. Level on points with Deportivo and a couple of points behind Real Madrid. However, they had another surge. They they looked down and out after a couple of defeats there, but then surged up the back up to the summit of the table, beating Sevilla, Mallorca, Recreativa, Malaga, and finally, with three to play and one point in it, they were top. But Valencia scuppered that. A ten-man Valencia scuppered it after Roberto Ayala was sent off, yet they still got a 1-1 draw in San Sebastian. Unfortunately for Lariel, Real were held 1-1 at home too to similarly place Celta Vigo. So the race for the title was as close as the race for that fourth and final Champions League spot. Deportivo would snatch third place. But as Lariel 73 points played Real Madrid 72, Celta Vigo's 58 played Valencia's 57. So both Celta and Valencia had spent the last five years in Europe. Valencia obviously losing two Champions League finals, one to Real Madrid in 2000, one to Bayern Munich in 2001. Whilst Celta Vigo occupied three UEFA Cup quarterfinals, getting very close in that tournament. Valencia would surrender their place in the Champions League on the penultimate day, losing 3-1 at Barcelona. Barca themselves would only leapfrog Athletic Club on the final day to make sixth place and therefore the UEFA Cup whilst Athletic Bilbao wouldn't feature in Europe in the 2003-04 season. Celta Vigo confirmed Champions League football with Mido's winner. Remember that guy, Mido, yeah? He, he scored the winner, a 3-2 win over Real Sociedad. So as Celta Vigo celebrated, the news for Real Sociedad from the capital wasn't good. It was Derby Day in Madrid, the Calderon, newly promoted Atletico Madrid, playing Real Madrid. The first league Madrid derby in a couple of years at the Calderon. Raul scored twice, Ronaldo scored twice. Real Madrid were back on top of the table and Ronaldo bagged two more in a 3-1 win that killed Athletic Club's European dreams, but not only their dreams, it killed Real Sociedad's dreams, obviously winning the league title whilst Larial's 3-0 win over Atletico kept them second. So, jammy undeserving sods, as Jonathan puts it. <laughs> the team in between the two races, the race for the title and Champions League spot, were Deportivo and at the heart of it, Roy Mackay, who lifted the Pachichi Trophy with 29 goals. One of the best forwards of his day, in honesty. Uh, Deportivo, like Valencia, were an up-and-coming force in Europe. Uh, nightmarish for fans of Manchester United, like me. Um, one of my first games at Old Trafford uh, was 
a Champions League tie this season, perhaps 2002-3. And Deportivo, I can attest, had one of the loud, probably the loudest away fans that I'd ever heard in the flesh at Old Trafford. Um, singing on the way to the stadium, singing non-stop at the stadium. Yeah, fantastic fans. Best fans I've seen, well, not only at Old Trafford, but, you know, in any game I've been to. They'd bow out these Deportivo, that is, in a 2004 Champions League semi-final, while Celta Vigo could only manage a last-16 elimination at the hands of the Arsenal Invincibles, who would, of course, go out to Chelsea in the quarter-finals. Now, looking to the other end of the table, Recreativo, Alaves and Rayo Vallecano were all relegated, cut quite adrift from the rest of the pack. Alaves a far cry from that team that reached the UEFA Cup final in 2001, losing to Liverpool 5-4, whilst Recreativo were in their first top-flight season in a whopping 23 years. They'd just come back up. Atletico and Racing Santander had also gone back up, but they hadn't strayed too far away from La Liga, obviously. A couple of years outside the top flight, but survived quite comfortably in 11th for Atletico and 16th for Racing. So the only team to be in the same position now as they were in 2003. Any guesses? Yeah, it's Real Madrid second place. They, were seventh. they are today... Seven points behind Atletico Madrid, who have climbed 10 places from 11th to 1st under the great Diego Simeone and do look on course to win another La Liga title with Simeone. So, Real Madrid are only two points worse off than they were 18 years ago today. Five points behind an undefeated Real Sociedad. So, is it possible? Perhaps. We'll be finishing off today's show with a 2000s trivial tease and I think I stumped a few people with a difficult one. So... Welcome back. Let's finish things up as we always do on the show with a 2000s trivial teaser. So, as I said, I think we stumped a few people. Podfather Mags got Ricardo Vazte from my selection of players and managers, which was wrong. The left-sided problem, Heide Helgerson, which was also wrong. So our players were his teammates, Gary Speed, Quinton Fortune, Nicholas Nelka, Jimmy Bullard, Clint Dempsey. He'd been managed by Carlos Queiroz, Atiran, which is crucial, and Sam Allardyce at Bolton, which is also crucial. He was, of course, as Mark Byrne and Michael Jones say, Andranic Tamarian. A player who I thought had played a lot more in England than he had done, when apparently he'd only played 30 times across a number of years. I thought he was a mainstay at Bolton and Wigan and all these other places, when he never actually played for Wigan, he played for Fulham. So, we're not doing centre midfielder today, as Andranic Tamarian is, was, We've moved on to a fullback this week. He's been managed by Alan Pardew and the great Dennis Wise. Some of his teammates, well, he's played alongside Paolo Di Canio, Fabian Delph, Sasa Illic, Herman Arideson and Haristo Storchkov. Yeah, from Haristo Storchkov, Herman Arideson, Sasa Illich, Fabian Delph, Di Canio. Who knew that Alan Padre could be linked to Haristo Stoichkov so easy? So we'll find out the answer to that next week. If you think you know the answer, tweet me at whatif underscore YouTube or leave it in the comments down below. Next week, episode 27, we'll be talking about Jose Mourinho's first spell at Chelsea, that ultra-successful spell at Chelsea. It'll be Yogi Love's birthday, so happy birthday to the German manager. And we'll be staying in Germany for The Table Never Lies, remaining in 2003.
Elsewhere on the channel, we'll be looking at the 1990 FA Cup final, as well as the best finalists from the tournament. We'll be talking about Italy, Alexandra Pato, Aaron Ramsey, Manchester United, Abu Dhabi, Jack Wilshire, and of course, FIFA Street 4, which I forgot existed before I reviewed it. Anyway, at what if underscore YouTube is our Twitter handle. Let me know how I did. Let me know the teaser answer if you think you've got it any more memories on sheffield united south korea and the 2002 world cup as well as rail sociedad's team of 2003 would be very useful hit a like subscribe as they all say as they all implore you to do here on youtube and thank you for listening i'll see you next week sports social podcast network with the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.